Hi, I'm Osha Ginsberg. Thank you so much for downloading the show. We have Gladys Berejiklian on the show today. She is the current Premier of New South Wales, which is the state that Sydney is in, in uh, the country of Australia. It's a bit of a big deal. Before we get to the show, there's a lot of people that help me make this program, and I like to make sure that I can pay them what they're worth. So... Um, to help me pay um, my audio producer Andy and my show producer Rachel and also Haley and Lauren that help me out. I need to put ads on this show. So depending on where you're listening and how you're listening, you're either about to hear a little commercial for something or you're going to hear Gladys Berejiklian and say something interesting and then you'll hear some music and then I'll be with you. Here we go. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does, they charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I worry that no matter what, position some people have, they feel that by screaming at the top of their voices is the only way they get heard or their way is the only way. And I'm, I'm someone who's learned over time, as I'm sure you are, maybe it's partly my age, my journey, my profession, that grey is a, a broad band and not everything is black and white and there's not right and wrong to everything. There's different approaches. And so long as we all feel that the end place is where we all want to get, we can have arguments about the method. But I feel in the age of social media, the vast majority in the middle are getting drowned out by extremes and that worries me because then the call to action isn't as clear and and it's upsetting because people don't feel they're heard but also sometimes the loud voices of the minority gloss over people in the middle who want who want to see change, who want to see positive change, want a kind of bit of direction on how to get there, but can't participate because if you don't have this extreme view at one end or the other extreme view at the other, well, where do you fit in? That is the Premier of New South Wales and member for Willoughby, Gladys Berejiklian. And this is episode 327 of Better Than Yesterday. And welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osher Ginsberg. As I readjust myself, 
on my lovely uh, kitchen table. I'm Osha Ginsberg, and thank you so much for being here. Thanks for being a part of the show. Today's episode is episode 327 with Gladys Berejiklian. She is the current Premier of New South Wales. She's a member for Willoughby, which is a, a part of the city of Sydney. And um, it's a big deal to have her on the show today. I'll, I'll get more into that in a minute. Thanks, everyone that got in touch through the week. Oh, if you, this is your first show, if this is your first show, hi, thanks for being here. This podcast is simply just a podcast to hopefully help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. That's it. Something you hear in this conversation. Yes, even a conversation with a, a politician whose ideological standings you may disagree with. Something you hear today will make you feel, ah, today went better than yesterday did. That is all I'm here to do. If you like this episode, there are 326 other episodes, so 326 other interviews, and I also come and check in every Friday. So I don't know how many episodes we've got by now. Crikey, it's probably up near 400 or so, but there's a lot. I've been doing this since 2013, so there's a lot of episodes to check in with. I've put a few uh, recommended listens in the show notes if you if you like this episode. There's a that's a few other in there for you to check in with in the in the political political vein. If you don't know who I am, I am uh, Osher Ginsberg. I'm a TV, radio, podcast, book writing kind of guy from um, Sydney, Australia. I grew up in Queensland. What else do I do? I don't eat meat. I don't drink alcohol. Can't have any gluten because I'm bloody celiac married I've got two kids two stupid dogs who are being idiots at the moment what are they doing they're just bark they're gonna all uh, right ah one of them knows how to open a baby gate so they're idiots but they're clever the baby's asleep the eldest is out getting some driving hours up because she on her rails and i'm here in my kitchen talking to you as i talk to you every monday and i have done every monday since 2013 Thanks heaps to everyone that uh, did get in touch through the week. Send Osher email is the email address that you can use to talk to me. I won't say who this is from because they asked to remain anonymous, but they said, I'm a relatively new listener. I found you in early summer this year. Your show and book have helped me manage my own climate anxiety, which can get pretty full on at times. I am hearing you. I made a check. Oh, this is emailing after last week about the toilet paper stashing. It's alive and happening here in Bendigo, Victoria. Crazy times. When you were listing the more positive things that people can do, I thought you could add, do something small to connect with your community to the list. And that's bloody true. You know, smile or say hi to a neighbor, do a favor for a friend, or even donate some time or money to a group who do good stuff in your community. That is a bloody good idea. Because I've also written here, that kind of stuff is in our control. Being nice to our neighbors is in our control and it makes us feel better at the time. And it helps build stronger, more resilient communities in the longer term. We all need this and it's easy to forget how important it is. Absolutely true. Thank you so very much. And sent a fantastic photo making fig jam. What a great thing to do while listening to a podcast. I really appreciate that. Thank you so, so much. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. Yeah, I really appreciate listening, uh, seeing where you're listening. So just uh, email me, send Osher email at gmail.com. I guess I should really start talking to you about my guest today because it's a really big deal. But there's a you know a bit of a story about it. It was it's a we started this show 326 episodes ago, and we've you know grown and grown and grown and grown, and the show has moved and changed, and we've changed theme songs, we've changed the title of the show, we've changed what the show is about. It's always been an evolving and moving thing, and the show's gotten higher and higher profile as we go. And just something in the last couple of months has been really kicking off, and we know this particular and we just keep making the show as best we can every week and then when people like Aaron Brockovich reach out when people like the premier Gladys Berejiklian reach out 
saying we'd like to come on your show because this is a way that we would like to connect with people because you have a conduit to an audience that we would like to access. That says a lot. It says a lot about independent uh, digital broadcasting, and uh, we we couldn't be more couldn't be more proud. But it's a bit of a it's interesting when you go and visit someone like the Premier. I grew up. If you read my book, you know that I grew up with two parents who'd both escaped authoritarian regimes at some point in their lives, which meant that for a long time I was, understandably, because I learned from them, I was quite afraid of authority figures uh, for a long time because my parents grew up to, to do that. Now, even though I'm now an adult with hundreds of hours of therapy under my belt, I still get a little wobbly when I approach a big security desk like the one you find downstairs at Gladys Berejiklian's office. Sensing my apprehension, I guess you'd say, to step forward, my executive producer and all-around legend, Rachel Barrett, she just strode towards that big desk and announced with a commanding posture, we're here to see the Premier. <laughs> the burly gatekeeper just going, here's your passes. And before you know it, we were in the elevator. We are up in the lift on the way to visit the Premier of New South Wales and the member for Willoughby, Gladys Berejiklian. Because a couple of weeks ago, her staff reached out to us with the idea that she would make a great guest on the podcast with, like I said, with the higher and higher profile guests that we've been having reaching out to us it's it's a testimony not only the side of the audience that you know we've built but the authenticity of the conversations that we've achieved and um we're in the elevator kind of reflecting on this as we as we headed up our first meeting we had scheduled was unable to happen because the premier rightly needed to take some time to visit the disaster zones during the the full force of the horrific bushfires of the summer she was boots on the ground out there so they basically called us up and said, we can't come today. So, no, that's fair enough. There's 70-metre high flames destroying towns. You should go. Uh, we're okay. <laughs> we'll fight another time. Um, so, Rachel and I, were just we were just in full anticipation of this conversation and nothing was off limits. A lot of times when you interview people of quite high profile, they, you know, their press person says, okay, can you not talk about this or not ask about that? Um, we'd like to focus on this or focus on that. No, nah. here's a premium. Sit down, have a chat. With an open brief like that, what do you do with the precious time that you've got with someone who's just so very important? Considering that, realistically, I had only an hour with the Premier, I felt that, you know, I guess to explore things, there's a few things I feel quite strongly about. And so to explore something along the lines of pill testing, for example, it would not have been a clever use of that hour because I'm not about to change her mind on this, nor is she about to say anything that we've not heard before. So what do you talk about when you have an audience with the most powerful person in the state? Well, I did think long and hard about this and I concluded that the best thing that I could do with this time was to demonstrate that two people from different places on the political spectrum could find some common ideological ground during a conversation. To try and have a connection with someone that I don't particularly see eye to eye with on a number of issues, such as pill testing, but to connect with her on a, on a human level in the hope that we could show in that conversation how reactionary online political discourse, cancel culture and comment trolling is not what the real world actually is. It might feel like the real world because you see it in the same place as you see all the reporting of the real world on your phone or on your laptop or whatever. But the truth is it's not the real world. In truth, nothing of what you see online is the real world. It's, it's a reflection, an approximation, a simulation if you will. When you see a report of a, of a sports game, you don't smell the pies, hear the cheers, you don't feel the pressure of other people's bodies up against you as you push through the gates. 
you don't see the sweat on the faces of the players. You don't wince when you see a hard tackle up close. You hear a few lines about what team won by how many points, and then your brain fills in the blanks based on your own experience of similar situations. So similarly, if you see a report about a war, if you live in Australia, chances are, luckily, that you've never had to be in a war zone. So when you look on the screen, when you look on the video, the confusion, the dust, the blood, the fear, the chaos, the lack of clear direction about who is doing the right thing, you don't know any of that. You just see pictures of people who look like they're from another country holding weapons we don't see on our streets, shouting in a language that's not English. It might as well be a cut scene from a video game. It's not real to you if you've no experience of any of those things. It's not the full story, nor can it ever be. And when you react to that news story or any news story, as far as I'm concerned, you're not reacting to what's actually happening in the real world. You're reacting to the blanks that you've filled in based on your own experience. So when you see, I don't know, when you see a false meme that claims toilet paper is going to run out, or a YouTube video that makes baseless claims about how this is either the worst thing to happen to humanity or nothing to worry about, understand that those things aren't real either. There's probably tiny itty bitty grains of truth in things like that. However, the person that created those memes or made those videos or whatever has inserted their own personalized reactionary fear into it and is putting it across as actual news. Well, it's not. Like I said on, on Friday, the, the first casualty of war is the truth. And in, in these times, it is vital for your own existence and your own survival to stay calm. Calm is contagious. As humans, I'm sure that we mimic and amplify the behavior of those around us that we perceive to be in control. It's probably a survival thing, all right? So you see someone who looks like they're in charge being calm. You're like, oh, okay, well, if they're calm, I'm calm. It's like when there's turbulence on a plane. If you don't see the crew panic, you don't panic. So stay calm because it's a contagious behavior. Don't be complacent, but don't panic because when you panic, you can't make good decisions. But how do you know if you're panicking? Are you talking fast? Is your breathing quicker? Is your heart rate elevated? Are you somewhere doing something that you don't normally do because everyone else is doing it too? Be calm, be careful, but don't be complacent. Somewhere between fear and apathy is probably where we should be when it comes to this coronavirus malarkey. Somewhere between gargling Dettol after meeting someone and eating breakfast off the handrail of the escalator at the shops, probably somewhere in the middle is a happy medium. Just check in with yourself. When you're reacting in fear, what happens there is that you've got an external locus of control and that is an unhealthy place to be in when it comes to your own mental health, okay? You want to have that internal locus of control. You want to be the one that's in charge of how you feel. Okay, you've seen it a thousand times, but keep calm and carry on. That was a real message. All right, it was a real message printed up by the, the people in the UK, and they had all these millions of posters standing by. So, because the book play, UK was getting bombed to smithereens, right? But they had all these posters standing by. So, if there was a really, really, really bad bombing attack, I mean, there were horrible bombing attacks, but if there was something really, really bad, they're going to put all these millions of posters up and go, hey, okay, shit's hitting the fan, keep calm, keep going. This is how we're going to win. Guys, now's the time. Today's the day. This is it. Stay calm. Here's a chance. Stay calm. Breathe. Look at the news. Understand that they make money from fear. People who are afraid are easy to control. 
don't get into a punch-up over toilet paper. <laughs> How did I get here? Where was I? Oh, yeah, the Premier. That's right, our Premier. Um, because it's in times of crisis that we really need leadership. So let's talk to a person who's a leader. A person like any other leader that we rarely hear from outside of an... Like, think about it. When was the last time you heard a, a Premier or a Prime Minister or anyone say more than three sentences? No, you don't. You hear them say eight to ten seconds and then they cut away and they say, I'm not did this. All right? You don't actually hear them explain a point. Right, so it's interesting to hear a full conversation with someone that's not a soundbite so you actually get a fuller picture of what it actually is because when it's just a soundbite, you fill in the blanks based on your own experience. So all cards on the table so you know where I'm coming from before we get into this chat. One thing people do tend to get quite wrong about me, particularly because I talk about climate change quite a bit. Unfortunately, climate change has been quite politicised, you know, because Al Gore, who was a very famous Democrat, in the US was one of the first super high profile people to talk about it about 15 years ago. When I talk about climate change, people assume instantly that I'm on the left. They make a huge amount of assumption about how far left I'm on and they make massive assumptions about where I sit on the political spectrum. To be clear, I am not a conservative. I disagree with a number of policies of Australian conservative parties, particularly around climate adaption policy and the treatment of refugees, but I'm incredibly grateful for things that the Liberal Party has done for my country of Australia, in particular getting guns off the street after the Port Arthur massacre in 1996. And on the other side of things, I'm not particularly a fan of everything that the Labor Party stands for. In fact, at the moment, the guys, like, we really need to be at 50% reduction of carbon emissions by 2030. We need to stop exporting coal, both from a climate and an economic standpoint. And that's not personal preference. It's what the science projects and what's the best economic projections are showing. All right, that's, We've got to move on that stuff. Yet, I'm still grateful for many things that the Labor Party have done for Australia. Universal health care, the abolishment of the white Australia policy, outlawing execution in our country. That's all things the Labor Party did. I think, like most people, there's some things that I feel more conservative about and some things that I'm more progressive about. That's human. That's what it is to be human. We're not all one thing or the other. That is what we are as a country. I am not an anomaly. I might err on wanting my tax dollars to help those in our community that are on hard times, I've been on the dole myself. But I'm not going to lie to you. I want that because it makes for an overall safer, more cohesive, more stable, more prosperous society when everyone feels included and looked after. I'm not some bleeding heart. I just feel that when everyone in a community has the basics of a place to live, healthcare and education, it makes the community better right across the board. And clearly you can see that when you are seeing people feel threatened as they do right now, right? People react in panic. They punch a stranger in a shopping mall over a toilet roll, okay? I personally feel that when people don't feel that someone's got the wheel, that's where they end up. They end up in panic. It's our leaders that make us feel calm in a crisis. So let's have a conversation with one of our leaders. When I sat down with the Premier Gladys Berejiklian, we, we spoke of her background, the pros and cons of our current democratic system, and what it's like to have strangers come up to her in the street with hand-drawn plans for saving Sydney from rising sea levels. Yeah, we talked a lot about climate change, a lot. Now, we did record this in mid-January, so historically things have shifted quite a bit. The coronavirus stuff wasn't quite so prevalent. There weren't people fighting each other in suburban Woolworths over toilet rolls at the time, so we didn't get touch on that. But I left all the talk with the bushfires in because it was very, very recent. The air still smelled like smoke. 
and I felt it was important to have a timestamp of where we were in the world when she and I sat down. So enjoy this conversation. I can't remember on what floor it was, but it was right in the middle of Sydney behind all the security people and behind all the glass walls. It was pretty brilliant though. Up in her office, it was all women. And as you walk down the aisle to her office, you see photos on the wall of all the premiers of New South Wales. And you seriously, you walk past, I think, 41 before you get to the first one. And then there's two more blokes and then there's her. So I've <laughs> got a long way to go, my friends. So enjoy this conversation in the office, in the HQ, at the desk of the Premier of New South Wales and the member for Willoughby, Gladys Berejiklian. Good morning, Gladys. Hi. How are you going? I'm pretty good. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm pretty good. I, you know, I do always like to have a chat with my Uber drivers because they have stories that will blow your mind. I don't care who, who you are. Like you just, you find, yeah. you don't have to ask too many questions. Family brought his father and mother, when the Russians came into Afghanistan, they fled to Iran after the revolution because that was safer than staying in Afghanistan. And they lived in Afghanistan, brought up his three children, but because he was an Afghan, he couldn't get, couldn't wow. even buy a bicycle in wow. Iran. His sister-in-law lived here in Sydney and they were able to sponsor him and bring his family out. His eldest is just starting uni now. He's like... How good's that? <laughs> That's a story of Australia. It is. Coming up to Australia Day, that is a story of Australia. It absolutely is. I'm an immigrant. I came from quite, you know, we came from the UK, but both my parents fled oppression. My mum fled the Russians to go into, uh, when the Russians came to Lithuania, my father fled the Russians when they came into Prague in the 60s and um, I know that your family has a similar, a similar, similar uh, path. Yeah, absolutely. So my grandparents actually fled old Armenia, which is now modern-day Turkey, in around the time of the genocide when one and a half million Armenians were essentially slaughtered, massacred or put on death marches. And so my grandparents fled and similar to the story of your Uber driver, it was safer to go to the Middle East than it was to stay in, in their home. So they fled to different parts of the Middle East and then obviously there were Christian minorities in, in countries at, at various stages which became conflicted. So my dad left Syria in the 60s and my mother left Jerusalem in the 60s and they met here in, in New South Wales and got married in local church in Chatswood. I mean, in church, which I now represent that area. So um, right. it's pretty cool. And similarly, my mother was very reluctant to leave her home because she loved it. But she came out here with her siblings and her mum. So she had came out here with family. But my dad just came out here on his own. He was the only one from his family that said, I don't want to raise a family uh, in Syria. I want to raise them in a free country. And he, he joined some mates and they just took off and, and came to Australia. So big leap of faith on his part. His mm. family's still all overseas. So um, this time of year, he'll ring everybody to make sure they're okay and yeah. catch up on, on the news. And my mother has, has her brothers and their families here, which is nice. I've been to Jerusalem a number mm. of times and yeah. uh, really great food in the Armenian quarter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and good ceramics too. <laughs> yeah, food's great. Yeah. Uh, it is tricky to bring such handmade goods back That's into our true. country yeah, as, yeah, you know, yeah. as various television shows will yeah, show you. Yeah. But uh, yeah, always good food in the Armenian quarter. And but they were always very, your parents were always very deliberate in helping you understand where it was you came from and why you were there, right? Definitely. They made my sisters and I incredibly proud of our background. So I used to go to Saturday school to read and write and learn Armenian history, which at the time was a pain, but looking back, I'm, I'm grateful that they made me do that. But also, um, 
It's interesting because my parents had two strategies and both seemed to have worked. One was for us to know where we came from, be very proud of our history and our culture, but also to feel every day how fortunate we were to be growing up in Australia and the freedoms we had and the opportunities we had and how important it was to give back. So they encouraged us to always be involved in school activities and and community activities and local organisations. So we were quite community-minded at a very young age and volunteerism was something we just did because our parents did and, and they encouraged us to do that. So I think it was a dual kind of um, philosophy they had of making sure the girls were proud of their background and their heritage and then also incredibly proud to be Australian and, and grow up in such a free country. But as a younger person, you you battle with that identity. But now I'm completely comfortable with the fact that I'm a very proud Australian and, and proud of my heritage and, and both coexist, as do for millions of people in our country. <laughs> so walking into your office here, we're in... Um we're in the centre of Sydney in the CBD. We're on the 20th floor. There's views for days. And walking into your office, you walk past photos of every single premier that have been yeah. in your chair. And it's all white men until pretty much 2004, eight, I think. Yeah. Christina Canelli. Yeah. I'm kind of unfamiliar with the kind of cultural role of women in Armenian society, but would I, would I be right to assume that it's kind of similar to other parts of that world and that it's a bit more patriarchal? It, it is. It has been more patriarchal in the last couple of centuries, pretty much because of the influence of the countries in which Armenians lived. So mm. most Armenians lived outside of Armenia. The diaspora made them have to assimilate. Exactly. Yeah. So if you had generations growing up in the Middle East, well, obviously that patriarchal society existed there. But traditionally, Armenian women had been quite um, free and Armenian was one of the first countries to give women the vote. So um, traditionally, Armenian culture has has been pretty good with women, but in the last couple of centuries, it's probably been more a product of where you're, you're raised and where you live. But certainly now it's fair to say that Generally speaking, it's more about where you've grown up in terms of um, Armenian families. But yeah, my family's pretty generally has been patriarchal, a lot of strong women, but it's still quite a patriarchal family. But there's people in uh, even of my age that I I know who was like, oh, no, no, you're not going to uni. You know, and she's like, what do, you, what do you mean? It's like, no, 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 that's... that's yeah, know. no, we don't do that. I mean, it's... One thing is that Armenian um, people generally around the world have really valued education. That's equally for women. So that's always been a strong cultural aspect. If you go to Armenia now, you you see a lot of overqualified people yeah. <laughs> driving Ubers or driving tax. So a right. lot of uh, very overqualified probably education is, is first and foremost, equally for girls as for boys. So Yeah. So when it came time for your own education through yeah. through like high school and, and planning to, yeah. know, was it ever an option to not go to uni or was oh, it like, look, oh, no, no, look, you're going? No, my parents completely left it up to all of us as to what we wanted to do, but I just wanted to go to uni because I, no one in my family had ever been to uni. So my parents were really clever, but they just never had the chance. They actually left school. My mother left school at a young age and went into nursing to help her family So and was a great nurse. So I was the first one in my entire generation to go to university. So I kind of, I wanted to do it because number one, I thought, well, I I was always very, um, I guess, loved school, um, loved learning and wanted to make something, wanted to give life, you know, my life meaning. And for me, it was partly through education and and learning. Yeah. I went to university for a total of six weeks part-time before I figured out it was too hard and I dropped out. No, (laughs) no, it wasn't too hard for you. It was just not for you because you were a bigger success. And look at you now. Well, this is the thing. Lucky you did leave because otherwise we wouldn't be having this conversation. You're you're correct. You're correct, Liz. But I was overwhelmed by it. And I I think, I don't know what it was about my folks, 
but might have been from what they came yeah. from. But, you know, when it came to discussing politics in our home, we grew up in Queensland under Bjorki Peterson who, uh, look, I don't have to tell you anything. It was a pretty dark place to grow up mm. in the 70s and 80s mm. there. It was pretty grim mm. for anyone that wasn't a white landowner. Mm. It was mm. not great. And I remember my parents seeing that stuff on TV going, what? Yeah. We left for this stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is not why we can't. And it was yeah. tough. So... That we kind of got learned to identify that, but really not much else. So I was a bit confused by all of it. And there were kids that I went to school with, though, whose parents were in various political parties. And I remember them shouting about to each other, like one's dad was in a trade union, the other one was in the Liberal Party. And I remember them having arguments across the quadrangle at lunchtime. I'm like, what are you guys even talking about? I had no idea. You know, was politics something that your family discussed? Uh, it was, but it wasn't party politics in Australia. My, when I say family, it's extended family because all my uncles and cousins would get around the table as well. The discussion was more about world peace. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, so it was not so much about domestic politics. Just the small stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nobody, no one in my family had ever been a member of a political party. Uh-huh. So um, we discussed politics constantly, but it was probably around the time of the Cold War and Middle East and more global issues were top of mind. And, of course, you know, as young people now are worried about climate climate change and the environment, my generation, your generation, I think I'm a bit older, much older than you. Um, Not by much. (laughs) But our generation was just so scared about being annihilated with nuclear bombs and that was the fear of our time. So that was a common discussion. How do we stop World War III? And that was almost every evening that was the discussion. The Cold War was probably Mm. something that we discussed a lot uh, around our dinner table. I don't think people, you know, young young people may not understand how extraordinarily real it was. Yeah. I guess, you know, the, the thing is that if it was going to end, the last thing we'd say to each other is, did you see that flash? And then that'd be it. <laughs> you know, the very unlikely that you would live yeah. in something that looked like Thunderdome. Yeah. You know, it would just be like, it'd yeah. be over because of the, the magnitude and ferocity and power of those weapons. Yeah. Versus now where it's like this kind of incremental, incredibly slow destruction. That's it. It's almost way more terrifying. Well, yeah, I think every generation has concerns and and we don't. Fortunately, um, the human race today has managed to overcome those issues in one way or another and uh, we've managed to resolve them and that's why I'm always optimistic about the future and always like to be informed about things and I try not to let emotions get the better of me when I feel strongly or not about something I try and just go back to the facts and say well what can we do what's practical because I think if hang on I thought you were a politician no (laughs) I'm a practical one no I'm a practical one but I'm always one to think and to be honest I don't have a lot of sympathy in this this is probably going to sound mean, but I don't have a lot of sympathy who just for people who just highlight problems and what they're upset about. Well, what are we going to do about it? What's the what's yeah. the call to action? Yeah. And everyone, you know, you don't use plastic bottles and no. when I offered you a bottle of water. So apologies, everybody. I still use a plastic bottle of water, but you do the right thing and that's your way of your yeah. contribution to how you feel we can make a change. And the, I'm always someone who believes change starts with yourself. And so I always encourage people who feel strongly and negatively about something, well, what are you doing about it? What are you doing in a, in a calm, rational way that's going to help others come to your point of view? The four words that my I'm a sober person and I have a person that guides me through that journey and he uh, hit me f- with four words once, so what, now what? Yeah. And that really, that's it, really. Yeah. It's like, yes, I agree with you, this is a problem. What's the call to action? What, what are we are doing? doing? Exactly okay, right. Okay, because otherwise it's another day will pass and it will still be a problem. No, exactly right. Or another minute will pass and it will still be a problem. What exactly. Are we gonna, but it is, it is in action that we feel useful. It's, we don't feel yeah. stifled. We don't feel crushed. Yeah. But something I feel strongly about at the moment is I, I worry that no matter what 
position some people have, they feel that by screaming at the top of their voices is the only way they get heard or by having, you know, their way is the only way. And I'm, I'm someone who's learned over time, as I'm sure you are, maybe it's partly my age, my journey, my profession, that grey is a, a broad band and not everything is black and white and there's not right and wrong to everything. There's different approaches. And so long as we all feel that the end place is where we all want to get, well, we can have arguments about the method. But I feel in the age of social media and kind of instant gratification, the middle voice, people, the vast majority in the middle are getting drowned out by extremes. And that worries me because um, then the call to action isn't as clear and, and it's upsetting because people don't feel they're heard. But also sometimes um, the loud voices of the minority gloss over people in the middle who want who want to see change, who want to see positive change, want a kind of bit of direction on how to get there, but can't participate because if you don't have this extreme view at one end or the other extreme view at the other, well, where do you fit in? I would 100% agree with you. And I, I think that's a great problem as we go forward now in a time where more Australians get their news from the internet than mm. anywhere else, a place that is not beholden to the same journalistic integrities that mm. the regular broadcast media is or the mm. regular print media is. And mm. those things are there for a reason. Those laws are there for a reason. Those delays on live broadcasts are there for a reason mm. because we learned in the 1800s mm. or whenever it was when mm. people first could buy printing presses the extreme danger of printing lies and then putting thousands of papers out. And, you know, there's riots. There was death. There was all kinds of horrible things. So, oh, we shouldn't do that. Not all things should be shouted in the loudest voice. It's not safe. And yet now we live in this time where those things are largely unchecked. And it it bothers me sometimes that we, when we are called upon in a democracy to make a decision, that we don't actually have a shared reality that we can make a decision on. Or a fact base, you know, a common set of facts that everybody says is the single source of truth. And then how do you devise a call to action from that single source of truth? And if, if all of us know what the facts are, well, then it becomes a much safer place to have those arguments. Yeah. So how do we, how do we find that? Well, a good question. And, um, you know, social media has, I think, empowered individuals, people who felt that they didn't have power or didn't have a voice, have found that power and that voice. Um, that's the upside. But the downside is the facts are sometimes get lost in the, in the discussion. And I think that's why a lot of people switch off or a lot of people choose to receive information via infotainment as opposed to news. But, you know, I think the important thing is there there are, for those who are interested in, and want to, the, the facts are out there, but you've probably got to work a bit harder to, to find them. I keep coming back to, there was Magda Jabansky who said once, don't ever forget, 62% of people voted yes on marriage equality. She says, that's Australia. Yeah. That's us. Yeah. All right. The screaming loud voices you hear on either end, yeah. It has the illusion that that's us, but it's not. No, it isn't us. And I I still have incredible faith that we live in a, a state, a nation where people are respectful, interested and, and help each other when we need to. And um, I'm so optimistic about our future. You wouldn't think that, though, if you read stuff online now. I mean, the vast, unfortunately, the tone of social media seems to be overly negative and angry. And they're two feelings I never want to feel. Like, you know, you fight against negativity and anger every day of your life because you want to be in a positive space where you can always step, take a step forward. I'm someone who would rather take a few steps forward every day than create a revolution every day because I think uh, steps forward are sustainable. Whereas massive change very quickly isn't sustainable because it disrupts and and sometimes you can't fight disruption because of technology. But I think in terms of positive change that's sustainable, it's how can we all together take steps forward. When you were a young person going to university, younger. 
You just said young person. But, you yeah, know. going to university. Okay, when you're yeah, a young yeah. person going to okay, university, you're a young yeah, adult, yeah. You're, in, you're in university. <laughs> I'm just trying to suggest that I'm not too old now, that's all. Yeah. No, you're not. <laughs> I you promise you. I've done my research. You really are not that much okay, older than me. Okay, keep you're going. You're not, but because I'm a man in the public eye, I can have gray hair and wrinkles yeah, and no one cares. It. Yeah. Uh, it's terrible mm-hmm. and yet this is the yeah. society we live in. When you were a, a younger person and you're at university, I remember going to visit my brother, pick him up when he was at uni and I'd occasionally walk past these lecture halls and there was so much screaming going on in there. And I'm like, what's, what's everyone screaming about? And I'd look at the poster and it'd be like, young nationals, young liberals, young yeah. labor, whatever. It's like, that doesn't sound like fun. But, but it's something that you got involved in when you're in, a, in university, right? I wasn't active on campus at all. No? No. I saw a lot of friends who were, who never quite finished their degrees or took you know, three times as long. And I thought, no, I just want to get through uni. And if I still hold my views, I'll know that I want to be involved in politics. So I I did join the Young Liberals when I was at university, but not on campus. I was active in my neighbourhood. But at university, I just tried to get through my degree, soak up all the information, soak up what life was about. And it wasn't until I got to university that I felt, because I'd gone to a public school and, and had public education, but it wasn't until I got to university that I saw all these kids from private schools and kind of worked out that life wasn't the same for everybody. But I had quite a sheltered upbringing. I had a very close family and we always felt we had the best of everything. And then you get to uni and you think, oh, there's this whole other world out there. And what does it all mean? So for me, it was a very formative time. I didn't always feel I fit in because um, I thought I was a bit different to most of the other kids, but it was an important time for me to learn and grow. And so I didn't want to be active in in politics on campus. I really wanted to be more, follow my academic pursuits and and just um, grow up really. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it seems to me that that kind of shouty student politics stuff is that real polarised? Because you're young and you're excited. You oh, know. 100%. And I was much more black and white when I was younger, yeah. even in high school. And some of the teachers used to say, Gladys, think about the opposite side though. It's not just your, you know, and because I was like, no, nope, this is the way of the world. This is black and white. Definitely. And, and everything's more dramatic when you're younger as well because you don't have the resilience or the skills yeah. to cope with things. So everything is, seems a big deal. A comment can mean something, whereas now you shrug it off because you've you've worked up on that resilience. Yeah. Yeah. So when you first started in politics, was it uncommon for you to, I don't know, at least have dialogue with someone across the aisle for you to maybe, you know, see how you might be able to find a middle ground? Yeah, unfortunately, that's not how our system works. So democracy, you know, everybody says democracy is the best way to govern, but it's highly imperfect as well. Our system is very partisan. So it's very one or other of the major parties are in government and there's an opposition. So uh, in democracies, free speech means there are opposition. So we should be grateful for that. But it also means at times it's not a constructive place because um, those of us in government, you know, you try and make sure though, that when you're making decisions, it supports the vast majority of people, no matter how they vote. And I honestly don't care how people vote, but you might want to make sure that when you're making a decision, well, I, I shouldn't say that I do care how they vote at elections, but it doesn't dictate how you govern. How you govern is, well, how can we all move society forward? How can we improve quality of life? How can we be the best we can be? So they're the kind of decisions you take in answering a decision you need to make. But in parliament, it's very antagonistic. Question time is all about the opposition trying to pick holes in the government. And it's very difficult. I'm not someone who can fake it. I can't be 
like that in the parliament and then pretend we're all friends out. A lot of people can and perhaps that's a more mature way of dealing with it. But I, I just try and maintain a professional relationship, a cordial, um, you know, obviously you do have personal relationships with those on the other side more than others. There's some people you relate to more than others and mm. that's in any workplace. But I generally find I try and always play the policy, not the person. And that's a, a rule I've always stuck to either publicly or in private, you know, deal with the issues, not so much about people's personalities or, or them personally, which sometimes is difficult, especially when, when you're the leader. But that's just our system. We have an active opposition and that's the upside of free speech, but it, it can also mean that sometimes there's divisions as well. But I think on, on major issues, on things that are important to everybody, you do have that level of bipartisanship where people do come together when it matters. And I think that's important. If you could change something about the way that we run our, well, at least state government, oh, what, what part of the system of, would you alter? Oh, there's lo- there's lots of things. But, um, you know, I come from a very different perspective in that I'm on the inside. And so I, I see things from a very different perspective. Yeah. I guess, generally speaking, you, you want, you know, I feel if a government is elected to govern, I think they should be allowed to govern. We have an upper house where governments haven't controlled upper houses in either state or federal politics for a long time. And I appreciate that people like that accountability, but it can thwart the government from delivering on its agenda as quickly as it would like. So that's an important question for us, but that's for the public to decide. The public have decided that's what they want and we have to work with that. But it does make it challenging at times when um, you're elected to govern and you've got four years, but um, the upper house you can't control. And so they may choose not to support your agenda, even though the public have generally said, we may not like everything you're doing, but generally speaking, you deserve to be in government. So that's a, a challenge that I think people probably don't appreciate as much because they're not on the ins- and I don't blame them, but the day-to-day workings, I think um, that's an important question we can ask. There's someone on the outside, uh, someone who's spent a fair amount of time unemployed. I watched a lot of Question Time yeah. and I would look at it and go, this is those kids shouting in my schoolyard. Yeah. These people paid a lot of money and yeah. they're talking about billions of dollars of tax money, yeah. of some of which I was taking on the dollar at the time. But um, <laughs> this doesn't look like it's a constructive use of anyone's time. You know, why would I have respect for people who speak to each other like this? Yeah, look, I think the tone and the way Parliament carries on isn't uh, something that, that all of us should be proud of. But could you imagine if we didn't have question time, the media would say, oh, you don't want accountability or... And, and to be honest, governments do need to be accountable. Mm. And so it's really a question of respect and how you conduct yourself. And again, I think, you know, the biggest weapon any member of parliament can have is the facts. So if you're well equipped with the facts, the tone can sometimes improve. And But again, that's one of the downsides of our system. And you can't have a perfect system anywhere in the world. But I tell you what, democracy and free speech trumps any other system <laughs> any day of the week. Well, as light as the... It's the worst way to govern a nation, but it's the best idea we've got. <laughs> something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Church yeah. Something. I've got yeah. completely stuff. No, you, you can't get perfection in no. government, but you can certainly, I, I feel that democracy and free speech trumps any other system in the world. So well, you keep talking about facts and I'm grateful for that. I tear my hair out. I struggle a lot with, you know, people who, whatever fact you mention, you know, if you Google anything for long enough, you'll find something that tells you you're right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And that's just an average punter and that's fine. But, you know, sometimes you're dealing with elected members of parliament who will see the same facts that you've got and go, no, nah, that's not right. How do you deal with people who are who have been put in this elevated space of responsibility who, who choose not to see the facts the same way that you do? Well, I think it's healthy for people to see the facts differently. I mean, what I mean by that is um, you might get a 
you know, a certain statistic that everybody accepts. But what that statistic means is all up to interpretation, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, as you said, if 62% of people supported marriage equality, that's fantastic. But someone might turn around and say 38% of people didn't support. That's huge, right? So, it's all in the interpretation. And I think, but I always believe at least having good facts as a starting point allows you then to have good debate, as we should do. That's what democracies are about, good debate. But um, I've seen people intentionally mislead or intentionally misuse facts. And that really irks me. That's the one thing I can't help because you can't fight that anymore. Because once, as you said, once something gets out there and it's wrong, it keeps getting repeated. Yeah. It's really hard to pull it back. It really, it really, really is. is hard to pull it back. And so at my level, I often make a call, you know, pick your battles and pick, especially when, when people say things that are completely untrue. You know, if I ask the question, I'll say it, but do you proactively try and do something? Well, you pick your battles, you pick the issues that are important to the community and, and kind of stay on your path mm. and let the white noise kind of eventually peter out. Well, <laughs> We, we live in a time of, we talked about the threat of nuclear annihilation being quite real when we were younger. The threats and the, the ongoing and right now today threat of climate change on our nation, mm-hmm. on our country, on our globe is so extraordinarily pressing. And yet there are people who will reinterpret facts. Like there are, I think it was one in Gosford and there was one in Shell Harbour. There were local councils who just reinterpreted what an environmental engineer told them and to protect their property values. Like what? This is, that kind of stuff just blows my mind. It does, but I also understand it. For example, I would think the vast majority of people accept, because it's obvious that our climate's changing, right? But then the question is, how much of it can we control as humans? And that's where the debate is. If all of us make change, if our nation makes change, if our state makes change, is it going to have a better impact on that? Most of us believe the answer is yes, but what are the degrees of yes? What can we do? And I think that's where the debate is. And and so long as we accept the premise, it's then finding its solution. And people will always have different views on how far we have to go. You know, I'm always someone that always likes to be balanced in how we tackle a problem. So if you're someone who works in an industry that perhaps others regard as not environmentally safe or sustainable, what does that mean for your family if you lose your job? What are you Mm. going to do? And so you will have a very different view of the world and we have to accept that. And some people don't have a choice about their life circumstances. And so I think all of us have to be a bit more generous in our thinking to know that we can't be black and white in our views. We can't just say no more of this or no more of that. We have to say, well, how can we transition? How can we move forward together so that people don't feel threatened or left behind or scared? Because unfortunately, those with extreme views on either end do create fear and it immobilises people. And people think, well, I'd rather not do anything than try and go up down either path because I'm not sure what it means and Mm. what it could mean for me and my family. And so I have a lot of empathy for people who perhaps aren't in a position where they can have the liberty of expressing their views freely because it might have an impact on them. And so long as we can keep showing people that this is a journey we're taking together and there's nothing to fear, but in fact, it's going to be positive for everybody and that we're going to make our planet a better place in the future and and sustain itself. I think that's where the conversation needs to start. It's to accept, try and put yourself in someone else's shoes and say, well, why is this person have this view? What are they scared of? Mm. How can we get rid of that fear? How can we deal with that fear? Because I think it's fear and concern that really motivates people's views. I never really quite got when people are shouting and screaming about my industry needs to be protected, mainly because I work in television and we had no choice. Yeah. YouTube showed up 
and our industry shifted overnight and, and that the, was it. And I'm the same. You get voted out. See you later. <laughs> right. Like, but I don't get to come screaming to you or scream, go to the federal government and say, our revenues are going through the floor because these overseas companies are taking all our eyeballs. We just have to go, oh, this is what's happening. We need to adapt. And that's just what we do. That's what we have to do. And that's what we are doing. And that's what we continue to do. And, and in many ways, television's way better because of it. Because we okay, well, now we have, we're forced to be as creative as possible and the sure. content wins. But we didn't get to scream to a politician and go, you have to stop this it just happened no i get that and i guess what i would say is people like you and i probably have choices or ability to kind of make those those changes um in some parts of remote communities people don't feel they've got those options right we're here because we this mine to, exists correct. and if the mine goes we need, our to, goes, we need yeah. to create those options yeah. but we also need to show people that transitioning from one energy source to another creates jobs in itself mm. and it's taking people on that journey because at the moment they can't see beyond that because that's all they've known and also explaining to people um which i do is that new south wales fortunately we've not had to take power from other states over summer, touch wood today, other states have had to take power from us. It's because they've transitioned too quickly. So we still, unfortunately, no one's been able to discover storage capacity for renewables to allow us to use those in peak times, right? So until that technology exists, we have to have a balanced approach to our power sources. I, I would put it to you, the technology exists that no one's just developed it at scale yet. Well, I hope so. And that's got to be market driven, right? Yeah. That's not something governments can do. The markets have to do that. We have to allow the markets to have certainty to to invest in those things and that's why I'm someone who believes very strongly that government, you know, makes its position clear and then industry responds by investing and, and the market does that, which is where I think where we're heading anyway. But I, again, it's having a pathway for people to say, well, yes, you might have only known this for a certain number of generations but there's potential in other areas but it's very difficult to put yourself in someone's shoes and know what it's like until you've walked in their shoes and, and seen what it's like and again I think there are positive options um, for us in the future and it's um, getting the right balance and getting the right transition. I'm proud of the fact that whilst we do have a good balance in New South Wales we've also got the nation's largest renewable projects in our state so people are investing and I'm confident there will be technological breakthroughs and I'm excited by what that could mean. You've been quite clear in the last few weeks and months about yeah we're we're not exactly taking the the federal stance on a lot mm. of this stuff. We are yeah. we're going towards hydrogen. I completely agree with you, by the way. A a fair and equitable transition for people who work within those industries is so so very important because I've, I personally believe that if you even lose the smallest community of people, whatever industry they, but if then it, it does affects us as a whole. If sure. it's, it's like a fruitcake, right? Yeah. If we move a couple of sultanas around, that one slice that you get, it won't be as fruity. Yeah. And yeah. then it's different. The whole cake tastes yeah. different. So similarly, our country, our state, it's super important we keep these communities together and a, and a fair and equitable transition towards another industry is, is vital for all of us. But, you know, in the same way that I don't eat meat, I haven't eaten meat for a very long time for environmental reasons, but I don't certainly don't expect everyone to Sure, the vegan. choices you make. And, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Similarly, I certainly don't expect us to go 100% renewable. Like it's clear that that eventually will happen, but there will be a period of time as we transition over. What role do you see now that you've just gone, right, we're just going to do this, which mm -hmm. I'm really mm -hmm. grateful for. What role do you see the state government has in preparing the ground for investment into a transition away from fossil fuels? Well, we've got um, various plans in place. So we know that um, certain power stations in New South Wales are coming to the end of their life over the next decade. So what are we doing 
to accommodate that. So obviously we are encouraging investment in renewals. We have a climate change fund which we allow communities to even develop their own grids, their own energy sources. So we're using our climate change fund to support some of those investments in those areas. We're also uh, making sure that we do have good transition in place for when those existing power stations come to the end of their life and, and other forms of energy take over. So there's a lot governments can do, but it has to be a joint effort between the community, the private sector and government. So government can set the right policies in place. And I don't think there's a lot of difference between what, there's a lot of rhetoric out there that people talk about, but when you look at the facts, there's not a lot of difference in policy between the states and the federal government, to be honest. There's perhaps a difference in ideology and for some people and the way people express themselves. But I think generally speaking, Australia has the potential to really be a global leader in, in renewable energy. We've got the smarts, we've got a highly educated population, a very entrepreneurial population, and people who generally, you know, want to be in a position where they're sustainable. And mm. I'm sure that everybody would want solar and batteries if they could afford it. But having, I've got a friend who lives in the inner west and he's set up his own house and he can even see on his phone how much energy he's producing every day. I'd like, you know, everyone would like to do that, but it's expensive. So if you're, um, you know, making ends meet in your house and you can't really have $20,000 to outlay on battery storage for your own house and yeah. provide energy. So the choices aren't always there for people as well. Mm. And governments have to work harder to make those choices available. And how can we make things affordable? so people can make those decisions. Mm. Choosing whether or not you eat meat is something all of us can afford, but when you move beyond that and go to the next level, that access is the issue and, and that's why invest, you know, having investments in technology and investments in those alternative sources of energy give people those choices, empower people to make those decisions. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. That's greenlight.com ACAST. When you think about the the pressing problem of climate change upon the state, obviously you were you were very visible. I'll put that to you. You were very visible over the last few weeks visiting communities. When you saw the people there and you see the communities they're in, what do you think about what do you think about the future of those communities? I'm hopeful. I'm really hopeful about the future, and um, it's interesting when you have a disaster the scale that we've had in, in New South Wales and it's it's been a catastrophic natural disaster. We've Do you think it's a natural disaster? Is that what you're calling it? What what do you think I should call it? Well a natural disaster kind of implies that there was nothing we could do about it. No, a natural disaster implies there are some aspects that were beyond our control. And I'll tell you why. The combination of things. Now what you believe is the source of those things is up to you, but there's no doubt, and again, many argue, and rightly so, that extreme weather conditions, deep drought, and just how dry everything is contributed to 
the catastrophe. And I call it a natural disaster because as human beings, we've never had to encounter fires creating their own weather conditions before. Now, that's a new phenomenon. And we've got outstanding, I think New South Wales is blessed, we've got outstanding people that are very experienced that have been in preventing and dealing with bushfires for many years who've seen things this summer they've never seen before. So to that extent, yes, you try and think you can prepare as well as you can, but there have been new phenomena we've not encountered before. So to that extent, it's a natural disaster. I mean, it's it's things you can't control those weather patterns immediately and therefore stop the fires. In the past, you could drop retardant and, and actually stop the fires. But the technical term they're saying is, you know, the pyroconvective columns and on all the, you know, the dry thunderstorms, all those conditions are a new phenomena. And, and to that extent, it is a natural disaster. But anyway, we digress. What was the original question? My, my question was, when you're seeing these these communities, oh, yeah, the, when you, Brazil, yeah, the, the sustainability com- of these communities. Yeah. No, I feel um, it's interesting to see people go through the various stages of grief, as you and I do, people do, and communities do as well. So, Now that the main fire fronts have come and gone, you know, it's been a couple of weeks depending on where you live, some people are almost ready to start moving on and rebuilding. Other people are still quite in shock and just devastated and others are all about we'll get better and stronger. So there's a a diverse feeling on the ground but generally speaking I feel there has been a bit of a shift in the last couple of weeks from sheer devastation and panic to how can we rebuild and, and how fast can we rebuild? And so I'm, I have felt that shift on the ground, uh, which is a positive, but that's not to say everybody's at that stage. We have to accept that some people won't get to that stage for a long time because they deal with things differently and some people are going to need much more support than others and that's okay as well. And some people who are very optimistic now might suddenly get a bolt out of the blue in six months when it's all too much for them. So you might be coping now, but in six months to a year, you might find you're not coping because people have a delayed response to trauma because a lot of people have been through trauma. Even kids who've been in cars who were escaping as holidaymakers, right? They've been through trauma. They've felt the fear of a fire coming down on them and mum and dad trying to pack everything in. And so for thousands of holidaymakers, there's that trauma as well. So we have to accept that. But generally speaking, I have felt a, a bit of a shift in terms of where communities are going but that's not taking away I mean you you get under the surface you have a chat to someone and they're okay and they think about the future and then you ask them a few more questions and you can you know sense the vulnerability Mm. and that's where you know we need to make sure we provide the resources to allow people to move forward. Uh, A couple weeks ago I had the extraordinary fortune to speak to a guy by the name of Jamie Simmons who was the director of the Grantham Project up in Queensland in 2011 when that inland tsunami yeah. uh, wiped out a town of Grantham. They, they moved the whole town. Yeah. They moved 120 lots. And he's now travelling the world talking to people and that his, his model of keeping a community together while moving to a place that is safer, his model is now being looked at as the model for a managed retreat when it comes to sea level rise. We are, over the next few decades, we're going to be looking at having to move people. That's just it. Parts of Wollongong, parts of Newcastle, really highly populated, big, lots of infrastructure, lots of railway line. This is within a metre of the sea level, right? And it might not be underwater all year round, but, you know, the floods and the storm surges and things like that will definitely put this infrastructure at risk. When you look ahead to that, I mean, even more pressingly, you know, I've got you know, my plumber who's at my house this morning, his parents are in Young. He's like, there's no water. Yeah. There's no water. And there's towns like Tamworth and Orange and things like that. I sometimes wonder like, are we using the wrong word drought? Because droughts end. 
if this is a new weather pattern. Well, interestingly, if you look at the last 20 years or the last, you know, half a century, some parts of the state have been in drought more frequently than not in drought. So are we using the right terminology? I don't know. But having said that, certainly I think the bushfires have allowed people to question, is it okay to live in the middle of the bush? You know, that's a positive experience for people until this bushfire catastrophe. It's it's like, is it safe now to do that? You know, I think people will be asking those questions mm. and that, that's appropriate. And I think the arguments we need to reconcile are, you know, those who strongly feel about environmental issues at the same time wouldn't be comfortable clearing land, for example. So how do you how do you manage those two competing issues mm. in a safe way? And to be honest, when you've not had anything like that happen in half a century, your level of complacency is a bit different to those who've kind of always lived in fire-prone areas and have a plan and, mm. and know that they have to clear their property and what have you. So I think for many people, this experience has been a new one and a different one. And I think we need to have a healthy conversation about what this means about a safe place to live and an enjoyable place to live and mm. a sustainable place to live. And I think they're questions we do need to ask. And similarly, you know, there's parts of northern New South Wales which are very flood-prone and ironically... In northern New South Wales, when I was back there in August or September, I'd been there previous in the previous 12 months dealing with fires and then I was back there dealing with bushfires. But there are communities that frequently flood, but they still rebuild in the same location. That's their choice. And I think we do need to ask ourselves these questions in the future. But at the same time, you can't take choice away from people and how they live and where they live. You have a, you have a background in economics. You, you know that eventually, I mean, if someone like BlackRock Capital is pulling out of fossil fuels. I mean, the economics are there. But when it comes to like trying to keep a city like, say, for example, Tamworth, all right, this is extraordinary city that's so important to our country and our culture, there's Tamworth. And But if it just becomes too expensive to keep shipping water out there, if it, the city itself becomes unsustainable to live in, like, do you consider like what we might need to no, do? No, I'm absolutely confident that a city like Tamworth will find a sustainable way to move forward. I mean, I think there's opportunities for us in Australia and New South Wales to do water management better, no doubt about that. And we have to make some good decisions about that. And recently we announced that we would increase the height of a couple of dams or move one of them down the river a bit. And I know that was controversial for some people, but that will make those communities sustainable in the future. So both the Dungown and, and Wyangala Dam and one of them is very close Tamworth. So that will keep that city sustainable into the future. So they're tough calls because that's not without environmental impact. But there's some of the calls we have to make if we want to continue sustainability. And if you looked at that decision in isolation, you'd think, no, we don't want to impact on that environment. But if you look at a bigger picture and say, well, that will keep all these towns sustainable into the future, people can understand that, especially people in the city get that more. Mm. So I think they're the kind of decisions we need to look at into the future. Better water recycling. I mean, it's always an irony that people People see rainwater go down the drains in, in the city and yet people in the bush are having to pay for that water. So there's lots of opportunities I think we have into the future and technology will help drive that. And again, I'm very optimistic about that. And some countries do it really well, even parts of the US. I mean, lots of major cities in the US are built in the middle of a desert and they're completely sustainable. So I think we've got lots of good examples around the world we can use. We just have to be, I think, more open to having those discussions about why certain decisions have to be taken to make those communities sustainable. And for a great town like Tamworth, I love the fact that their economy is so much more diverse now. The Tamworth Music Festival is about to start and that will bring lots of tourists. Their agriculture base is fantastic, but they've also got other industries that are being developed. And I think now because of the internet and because of better communications, you can run any type of business from 
from anywhere in New South Wales, so long as you've got good internet connection. And I think that's really allowing people to be a bit more innovative. And oh, I don't know. I work, I work in video and even I've got the fastest NVN you can get. Yeah. And uploading big files is... Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> I've spent time in other countries and yeah. my phone explodes. It comes down and yeah. up that fast. Yeah. So, High-speed rail aside, I think yeah. high-speed internet deployment of that to the kind of like non-metropolitan areas would, you know. I agree with that 100% and also just good mobile phone coverage makes a difference as yeah, well. So there's precisely. no doubt that if we – well, that's an example of where government can invest better in infrastructure mm. and we've set aside half a billion dollars to do that. But better communications – allows diversity of economies and new industries to exist as well as the the older industries and then gives people more choices and then um, people can have more options which mm. is what we want to create there's a term that i learned i went to i did eventually go to a, a school it was in amsterdam went to a business school it was great but i learned a term there nimto not in my term of office um and i it really made me think about particularly in our federal government where the, the turnaround is just so rapid it's like no one can get anything done ever because it just happens you're campaigning half your But that's democracy. It's It's the worst. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And the best, but also the worst. When you go to make decisions, when you particularly, you know, when you're talking about like long-term infrastructure, particularly for communities that are really prone to flooding or fire or or drought, uh, it's like a Dorothy McKellar poem, but um, it sounds like you think outside of your own days in this office. You have to. And I think most people do. You have to. And you don't appreciate the responsibility you have until you're in the job. And then um, you do. I mean, you have an understanding of it, but it's very different because, you know, the buck stops with you. Mm. And so you also know, I never want to look back and think, gee, I wish I'd done that or I wish I'd done that differently. And there will be times when that happens only because you may not have all the information or there were different circumstances which lead you to make a particular decision. But you have to think about the medium to long term. And a few examples of that is when I was a transport minister, we were having public discussions about the metro and I knew that it would take us at least eight to ten years to build the first metro, but if we didn't start, we would have a population completely reliant on cars, right? And now we're building a system, a network, where mass transit, metro and light rail is the future, not just driving around, sitting in traffic. So that's an example, perhaps a simpler one, of where you make a long-term decision because you know it's going to benefit the community. And now that we've been in government nine, nearly nine years, you think, well, thank goodness we made those decisions. And there were lots of other decisions um, on a whole range of issues. In education, how can we improve pathways to allow people to take a trade as well as go to you know, whatever choice they want? And they're decisions that you can't turn around in a day. Mm. You know, I always think about what do I want New South Wales to look like in five years' time, in 10 years' time, in 20 years' time? What options, what aspirations and hopes does the population need and want and quality of life and how do we get there? You have to think like that. We talked about ideology when it comes to, uh, and I've got to say, you've been doing this whole chat with your emails banging at you every, yeah, that's okay. every 67 <laughs> seconds. Every every like 15 seconds, your eyes flick to the screen and I see another email coming up. <laughs> like, I can't imagine what your inbox is going to look like after this. So I can't think enough of your Yeah, time. that's okay. We, we talked about ideology at the, at the top end. You know, ultimately, we have, all have a subconscious bias that makes our mind up before we sure. have a chance to, to it's speak. It's so true. It. And that is shaped by who we brought, were brought up to be. Yeah. All those things, are, and I see it now with my infant son, all that stuff is written before yeah. the age, age of five, all yeah. right? It, you may get radicalised later in life. If you spend long enough on Facebook, you'll, you may yeah. start to remember, you know, believe different things, yeah. which aren't real. But it seems that that stuff really starts quite early. 
you don't strike me as, yes, you're in the Liberal Party, but you don't strike me as the kind of person that's going to show up with a lump of coal in your hand to Parliament. Well, I mean, in, in fairness to my colleague, can I say that I, um, I have enormous respect for all of my colleagues and don't begrudge them for what they do and say because you fight your way in public office and I think people should have the courage to say what they think and feel and act on that. But I have a very simple philosophy which drew me to the Liberal Party and that is that of equality of opportunity and that's really what drives me and my decision-making and that is to make sure that no matter what your circumstances are, what your postcode, what your background, if you work hard, you should have the opportunity to be your best. And so long as we live that in every decision we take, we're doing our jobs. And that can mean something like providing a fantastic public education system so that no matter where kids go to school, they have the chance to be their best. A great transport system so that no matter what your income or your background, you can get to and from work and not spend half your life in traffic. So for me, it's a very practical and state governments, at a state government level, you can afford to be practical because all the issues we deal with are pretty practical issues. It's much more difficult at a national level when you're dealing with pure ideology. At a, at a state level, um, that's why I love state government. It's a very practical response to providing that equality of opportunity. What are the things we need to do to make sure our citizens can have the best quality of life, can feel that they're providing for their families and the next generation, and how can we be an example for others? And that's a simple philosophy that I abide by. And what does that quality of life look like? I think the quality of life is that people feel empowered to have choices in their life and to feel that they're getting good satisfaction out of their life, whether it's through their job or through their networks or their neighbourhoods. And that's an answer that everybody has to answer for themselves. But the more choices people have, the more empowered they feel and the more satisfaction they get out of participating. And and that's an issue that individuals have to answer and families have to answer. But our job is to provide that platform so that you can make those choices. You're not stuck in, your station in life is not determined by your postcode or where you're born or how you're born. It's determined by what you do. And I do value hard work. I do value, I have a good work ethic and I, and people who think everything comes easily and they can just coast through and have everything they want. That's not how life works. So I, I, you know, for me, it's a philosophy of if you're happy to work hard at it, you can be anything you like. And my role as the leader of the New South Wales government is to ensure that we have good services, good healthcare, good education, good transport to allow you to enact those choices. But I'm a, a straight white guy born into a middle-class yeah. son of two doctors. Yeah. I've won the lotto, all right? <laughs> if I show up for a job interview versus a person my age who's only been in this country for a couple of years, perhaps from Sudan or someone like that, let's say the job's in, in, in retail, you know, where it's very forward-facing and, and the person who runs the company is a straight yeah. white guy, come on. Like as hard as that Sudanese guy is going to work, the luck of him getting the job is pretty slim. Well, a good business person will hire someone who's going to be most productive. Yeah. Right? And I, look, my dad was a welder. My mother was a nurse. I couldn't speak English when I went to school. I haven't done too badly. So I kind of feel the opportunities are there and most people take people on who they are and what they do, not on their background. And I have absolute belief in that. Does discrimination of one type or another exist? Of course it does. Do people have deep-seated views on leadership and what that looks like? Of course they do. You know, I'm sure if people close their eyes and think, what does a New South Wales Premier look like? It's not me. It would be a different image. But that's not the point. The point is, notwithstanding those stereotypes, people can be successful. People can be who they want to be and, and achieve great things in life. And I don't think that's a reason for people not doing well. Quite the opposite. 
if you look at people who are most aspirational and most successful, it's the first generation migrants who know what it's like or who, like I've heard stories through my parents about what their life was like and what they've had to go through and the sacrifices they've mm. made. And that makes me want to work harder. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of people like that across the state. And that aspiration, whether, you know, your example of the Sudanese person or whomever, that work ethic, that aspiration, it's what's going to make New South Wales one of the best places to be in the future. Mm. Because we've got a population that wants to strive to do better and work harder and provide a better opportunity. That's what makes communities want to be their best. Mm. And that's actually a positive, not a negative. When in this day and age, it used to only be reserved for people in the public eye, but now you can put a photo on Facebook and say it'll be a photo of, you know, you and your kid, you get 500 likes, hooray. You might put a photo of you and, you know, this hot dog that you're eating, you might get two likes and suddenly you feel like, oh, my community doesn't like me, all right? That's a feeling that used to only be reserved for, or people would write horrible things in the comments on your own personal life. These used to be only reserved for people in the public eye. You're someone who you have actively chosen a career where a lot of people in public will say things about you, people who you've never met will say awful things about you every single day. How do you get out of bed every morning? How do you manage that? How do you absorb that? Because you're human. You have feelings. Sure. I like to think I've got feelings. Um, But that's more a reflection of them, not me. And I don't have, like privately, I don't have social media. I don't communicate with my friends through social media. What's important to me is that people I respect, respect what I do and my family and friends. And beyond that, people are entitled to their views and it doesn't bother me. If what people thought bothered me, I mean, on any given issue, you can assume that half the population is not going to like what you've done, right? You have to assume that because everyone has different views. But I think what matters to me is that the vast majority of people think that my motivations are pure. So they may not always agree with what I do, but so long as they know my motivations are what I think is in the best interest of the public, that's enough for me. And beyond that, I don't really care. <laughs> I guess you're going to have to take a stance like that if you want to get anything done. Yeah, Otherwise, you're, sure. putting out, you're putting out spot yeah, fires if you, all day. If you're worried about criticism, you shouldn't be in public life because <laughs> because then you'd never make a decision. And can I tell you, it's much easier not to make a decision, but that's not good for anybody. So it's much more difficult to actually make a decision decision. Well, first of all, to decide what the right thing to do is and then to try and bring the community with you. But as I said, not everyone's going to agree with you. What do you do to keep yourself resilient? What do you do to make sure that your own health and you, you know, you are the shadow minister for mental health, obviously, this is yeah. something that's, you know, yeah. you're very aware of how quickly and easily yeah. someone in a high stress situation can fall off the edge. Yeah. How do you keep a handle on well, things? Well, I kind of, for me, I get strength from seeing resilience in others. Like when people have lost everything and they're still kind of positive about the future, you think, well, gosh, I do get resilience from seeing other people do outstanding, amazing. In my job, you get to see that all the time. But I think I'm someone who hasn't always had it easy. So I've kind of built it up over time. So things probably bother me a bit less than they might other people. But again, you don't know at any time how you might be impacted by something. But Mm. I have learned also that for me, sacrifice is part of what I do. So I know that the career path I've chosen does mean sacrificing a lot of what I have, but I don't mind that because I get great satisfaction out of making a difference. Not everybody gets to do and make decisions like I do. So I guess my resilience is really a couple of things, my upbringing, my background, but also the notion that I'm in a very privileged position. Very few people have held my position, I think 44 others apart from me. So therefore, I come from a position of being very fortunate. So that that helps me cope. You mentioned earlier that you try as hard as you can to keep emotions out of it. For example, when it's something as emotional as, you know, a parent whose child has died at a music festival and they're talking to you face to face. yeah. 
you are a human being, you have yeah. empathy, this person's clearly grieving. How yeah. do you then keep emotion out of a situation like that? How do you process that? Well, you don't keep emotion out of your own personal way of dealing with it because obviously you're human and you feel things and you empathise or you, well, you can't because unless you've been, you know, in that situation, you don't know what it's like. So you can't pretend you do. But having said that, you also accept that people have a viewpoint depending on their own circumstances. So what they've experienced is impacting what they feel about things. And I think the most important thing and the most difficult thing for us to do as humans, and especially in my line of work, is just listen the power of listening is really huge and I don't do it well all the time, but I, I'm conscious of it all the time. And if you listen, you learn something and you appreciate where someone's coming from and why they feel the way they do. And then you can, you know, you're better informed to make your decisions. So I think listening is a really important tool for empathy and also for understanding where people are coming from. I mean, I only know this from like when I was doing those live shows around the country and I was talking a lot about my own mental health journey and, and my pathway through psychosis and back out again people would come and disclose to me after the show yeah. and I would, for hours, I'd be just kind of like, oh, yeah. because I had 22 it's people. It's a lot to take on. I had 22 people in a row tell me something yeah. horrible had also happened yeah. to them when they were a little kid. How do you process at the end of the day to make sure that the next day you can get up and go, yeah. right, whatever was pressing yesterday, like everything that comes through this door next to me is, yeah. is urgent. I'm looking at sitting in front of me, there's an in tray <laughs> that is stacked and an out tray that is empty. So, you, you know, <laughs> how do you process emotional things at the end of your day to make sure that you're ready for the next day? Well, it just comes down to having in your head that the buck stops with you. People rely on you. So, yes, you're affected, you're impacted. Some things get to you more than others because of your own experience. But how do you park that and, and still make good decisions? And, again, I can't really – there's no formula to it. But I think it's something that you've built up over time. It just doesn't happen overnight. So I've been in public life quite a few years now. But also your own life experience is about knowing that no matter how bad it is for an individual or a community, that there's always a pathway through it. I'm just lucky that I'm a half, you know, I'm a glass half full person, not a half. And that's helped me as well. Not everybody has the luxury of being in that position because people don't always have that attitude. But I, I feel that because I, I tend to be an optimistic person, I can always see the path forward no matter how bad something is. I can kind of see the little flicker of where we can move forward. And, and I feel that's what helps me, you know, move forward. My eldest is just about to turn 16. My boy is about just on five months now. When he's 16 when she's in her early 30s, probably starting her own family, what does New South Wales look like? Bear in mind that climate-wise, it'll be quite different. I think New South Wales will be the best place on the planet where people can live, work, raise a family and make a contribution to the greater good. I really believe that. Yeah? Yeah. And, and, and I'm very the... optimistic about that. Yeah? <laughs> You're not as optimistic as I am, are you? I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure that you are in possession of a squillion more facts than I am. No, that's not true. I am. No, we just have different jobs, but I think your view is no less or more important than mine. I'm exceedingly optimistic yeah. because that is all I have. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Understand. I, and, and I've got to tell you, like, it's, yeah. it's really tough. If you, I don't know, say if you live in Haberfield or you live in Petersham here in Sydney, all right, sea level rise, you don't care about. It doesn't touch your day, all right? Do you reckon? I think people still worry about they it. They don't care about it. Really? It doesn't touch it. If you've, come on, if you've got three kids and yeah. you're flat out trying to get everyone to school on time, yeah. you, don't give a, you don't give a care. When we do, when we work in Fiji, when we work in making yeah. that batch in paradise, I drive past five villages on the way to school every day, on the way home 
every day. There's mature coconut trees, fully roots exposed yeah. from the edge of a seawall that they've had to just put up that far away where that door is, all right? The sea is coming up and swallowing their homes. It's really, they really, yeah. ca- you know, it's happening. Yeah. So they don't, people in the inner cities don't really care about oh, this stuff. Oh, I think people do care. What they do about it's another matter. Right. But you do, you have to care. I mean, I think you do care about the well-being of people around the world and in, in different circumstances because one day it could be you or it could be someone you know or love. So it's, I think even though it's something doesn't affect you directly, it doesn't mean you don't care about it. Quite the opposite. I think that's why a lot of people do feel strongly about climate or environment or sustainability because everyone sees their part in what's happening because, you know, rising sea levels don't just belong to the responsibility of one country. It's the global community. So therefore I do feel people do care. But climate adaption is something that we are going to have to do. Well, we've done it unknowingly already, right? Whether we're conscious or not, we've made decisions in our lives at a government level to adapt already. But I think moving forward, it will be more conscious decisions because of the world around us. I I was at the ABC the other day and they have a folder in the corner and I said what's that so that's the secret plan in case the queen dies they have a secret yeah it's not secret now uh, they have a have people come into this office and go we're going to have to build a seawall across the heads of Sydney Harbour like have people come into this office oh, and tell all me the stuff time, like every day really <laughs> the person in the street will often give me a drawing of something or well, every day but that's what makes democracy great and I like that because people feel empowered people feel they can contribute and I think people accept you can't adopt everything that everyone puts forward but I think having different ideas is a healthy part of democracy. So I don't mind that at all. I get lots of interesting diagrams and and ideas and especially from people who are a bit older who've seen things before. So when I say I've not seen something in my lifetime, you know, I'll meet an 80 or 90 year old who'll say, well, I actually have, and this is what we did. And that's useful because that corporate knowledge you can't bottle, right? So again, it comes down to listening. And even if you don't agree with what they're putting forward, why are they having that view? What have they seen that you haven't? And is there something I should be thinking about? I can't thank you enough for deferring your thank emails you. for an entire hour for me. <laughs> thank you. You're the best. Thanks for it's asking been, me to do this. No, pleasure. Thank you so much. So and um, <laughs> no, I'm so honoured. Thank you. And <laughs> I, I love your TV show. I'm one of about 120 people that make it. I just get to be the one in the front. But trust me, uh, without anybody else. I'd love to interview you just on that show alone. (laughs) Book it in. (laughs) (laughs) That was the Premier of New South Wales, the member for Willoughby, Gladys Berejiklian. Interesting chat. I guess, you know. You can hear, there's a couple of times there where I kind of circled back around and then back around and back around and then in my head I'm like, she's a career politician. I'm not going to nail her down on this. She's not going to get an answer. I'll just move on. So you, you clearly clearly heard that. And, you know, you've got to be that kind of person to get that kind of job. But, you know, my thoughts on that. I can't thank her enough for her very valuable time. It was an extraordinarily busy week and there was a lot of very, very pressing issues that she needed to take care of. And I, I, I can't be more grateful for the time that we spent together. And I can't be more grateful to her team who worked very hard to make sure that we have the time. And, and I hope that you can hear in the conversation that we were cordial. We connected on many, many things. And I hope you can understand that when it comes time to assess whatever a politician is doing, that just writing them off completely because they're this party or that party, it's not the full picture. And that it does take an investment of time and effort to understand a little more about this person. Obviously, it's up to you as to what you do with that information, but um, I'm really grateful. I can't thank her enough for doing that. It was really cool. 
You can find our Premier on both Instagram and Twitter. She's Gladys B, G-L-A-D-Y-S-B on both Twitter and Instagram. If you're interested in that conversation, there's a few other conversations of a similar vein. I've put them in the show notes uh, as a chat that I had with Peter Garrett, another chat I had with Jamie Simmons, and another chat I had with an MP in Queensland called Leanne Enoch. As far as you know, women in power goes, uh, it's kind of interesting. My dogs are fighting because they're idiots. <sighs> if you need me through the week, send Osher email at gmail.com or you can get in touch with uh, Rachel and Lauren, hmm at harrymiller.com. <laughs> If you need me for anything else, I've got to go. These dogs need to go outside. All right. Thanks heaps to everyone. This is a massive episode. Team, we're on the way. What do you mean we're on the way? I've got to celebrate this moment. Premier of the state reached out to us to be on our show because they felt that our show was the right place to be. Look what we've built together. This is Ripper. All right. I'm going to get these dogs outside. Until we speak on Friday, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. 